welcome to What's the Catcher with me, Bettina Campolucci Bordy, and me, Nikki Webster. Our podcast is all about sharing a passion for the things we eat, good food, and the people behind it. Which is why we're so pleased that our lovely sponsor is Doug Drinks. You can see it all for yourself at dougdrinks.com, and they have kindly given us an exclusive discount just for you, our lovely podcast listeners. If you enter the code WTFDUG10, you get 10% off all their milks. So let's meet this week's guest. Today we're joined by the wonderful Thomasina Myers, prepared to be inspired by Thomasina, the wonder woman behind Oaxaca. As a chef, author and sustainable food campaigner, her passion and energy for food education in schools and bringing more sustainable practice into hospitality are abundant. So we've got the lovely Thomasina Myers with us today and how are you? How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. The sun is shining. I spent the weekend gardening, uh, which made me feel very happy, although a little bit middle-aged, if I'm honest. Um, and 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 I've just I've just handed an eight weeks worth of my Guardian column in, so I'm feeling rather good. Oh, yeah. fantastic! That's, That's going to make you feel good. <laughs> I also um, did quite a lot of gardening at the weekend. Also very middle-aged, but you know. Maybe. Oh my god, it's so funny. I literally remember my, my mother talking to me about gardening, thinking it was the dullest thing I'd ever like, just why are you even wasting your time opening your mouth talking to me about gardens? It's just like the most boring thing ever. And I've just spent a lot of time and energy um reinvigorating my garden and planting a cherry tree and a mulberry tree and a pear tree and an almond tree and lots of kind of fruit and vegetables growing out of it. And it just, it's just given me so much pleasure. I've moved the guinea pigs out. So they're my kind of foraging oh, animals. They're my, you know, they're my, rove, what do you call them? Herbivores. They're, they're putting my good soil to work, pooing everywhere, hopefully. I might try to keep my lurcher away from them, thinking, you know, occasionally looks at them like they might be quite tasty. Uh, like, no, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's great. We've seen a rat and a toad. Uh, so I feel like there's a whole ecosystem, hoping that we'll get a hedgehog one day. Oh, I love hedgehogs. I know they're so cute, aren't they? But I think with gardening, it just hits you suddenly. It's just like a, a brick. So suddenly you become interested in gardening. Yeah. The weirdest thing. I do, I do in-house gardening. Yeah, you, you're surrounded now, by plants, aren't we? Plants. <laughs> That's, you can grow quite a lot in-house, can't you? You can indeed. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, some, yeah. some of my plants haven't survived the move. Um so I wanted to ask you, and I know that you get asked this quite a lot, but it's how we're going to get into this. Um, how did everything start for you career-wise and food-wise? How did you get into, how did you get into your food career? Uh, I, got into it, I got into my food career astonishingly slowly. <laughs> I, I have always cooked. I, I was fascinated by food from a very early age. I found playing with dolls really tedious. I, I got given a farm set for my birthday when I was about seven. Thought it was really never played with it once. Anyway, I did actually I had some Manja Janes. They were quite sweet. They were tiny little dolls. They looked like babies. They were quite sweet. They were literally my niche. But apart from them, I was really bad at playing. Um, got bored really easily. But then I was always really intrigued because my mother would kind of be doing all sorts of exciting things in the kitchen, and I'd always be kind of pulled in somehow. And also because I loved being with her, I found her quite a calming influence. Um, 
and I fought a lot with my sister, then it was quite just, I just loved sitting in the stall and watching what she was doing. And she was always teaching me what she was doing. And so from quite early on, I started becoming fascinated. And then because she didn't have much cash, she was always buying the same kind of cheap ingredients. So marrows were my all-time worst, which she would buy kind of the end of the summer season and like endless amounts of mints. Very seasonal though. It was always very seasonal. She'd wait till she could afford the aubergine, you know, and the globe artichokes. That was always a massive treat when they came to season. We'd have them with burnt butter and fresh bread mopped in with all the hearts and everything so it was it was foodie but but kind of on a on a shoestring and so I used to get really bored of her just doing the same things over and over again and so I used to start saying well can I try doing something different with these aubergines and they didn't have many cookbooks but I remember them having a couple and there was one that was an encyclopedia and so you could look up the vegetable and then there would be different recipes with them. And so I'd start stuffing aubergines and really realising how that if you just put some toasted fried breadcrumbs on top or a bit of butter on top and then some tiny bit of parmesan or just cheese probably had in those days, I don't can't remember, how much flavour you could add from just quite simple ingredients and how you slow cook onions, you can make food taste really, really delicious. And so I think that growing up, seeing how very simple, humble ingredients can turn into such dramatically delicious, like outrageously good dishes, always has informed my really democratic view of what good food should be, how how everyone should be able to eat well. And and also this idea that you could just pretty much open a fridge and pull together anything if you've got a few basic tools. And I think that's why it's so important, food education in schools, because obviously if you don't have that background, then you're faced with some really cheap ingredients and you wouldn't know how to feed yourself. And I think it's it's one of those, um, it's it's like a kind of survival skill, really, cooking, I see it as. And, and the idea that if you don't have those skills of knowing what's in the kitchen, then you have to farm out your survival, because without food we die, to large multinational companies who are around for profit rather than any reason to keep you healthy or happy or it just seems to be nuts and I think and I think this whole my whole attitude of food has really evolved over this and and finding particularly in Britain our relationship with food to be so nuts because in countries I've traveled to like Spain or, or France or Mexico India particularly the countries with really really strong cultural foodie backgrounds Food is seen as as a basic kind of survival thing, but it's also seen as this hugely pleasurable, ritualistic thing to kind of weave into the fabric of your culture. Uh, and then also, I mean, happiness and pleasure, the idea of sharing food with friends and family, to, which to me is one of the greatest pleasures. Um, but then, then also the sense that you, you lose your independence, you farm out your your opportunities and your choices um, if you can't cook. And I find that, you know, when you look at the food poverty going on, particularly in this country, and, and and the fact that food is now killing more people than smoking or alcohol, poor diets are, you know, we've got the worst diet in, in Europe. And, and then that, yeah, there are so many people on low incomes who don't even have enough food. The food they are eating has no nutrition to it. It seems to be so topsy-turvy and upside down. And the fact we don't value value food really because food is is very valuable it's really hard to grow as I'm learning in my back garden absolutely yeah I mean, I mean you covered so many subjects there I mean I want yeah. to comment on absolutely everything but I just but I'm just gonna say it's, it is 
crazy. And where do you think that disconnect came from? Do you think it's something that's evolved over time or? Well, I've read a lot about it and I think some of it goes back to the Industrial Revolution. So we were really progress- progressive, I say, with inverted commas. We we managed to kind of ship ship a lot of um, the kind of, you know, what, what we see as the working classes off the fields and into the factories. Hooray! Um, so we got them off from, you know, growing food and into factories and, and women as well and worked them on long hours. And therefore, suddenly there was less time to cook, less time to do stuff yourself. And that's when we started separating out duties and getting other people like the poor houses, I think, fed lots of people on low incomes. And I think it was the the beginning of that unraveling and the loss of connection between between us and the land. Um, And I think it's just carried on. It's just carried on, carried on. And, you know, you look at you look at the American kind of system as well and 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 also i think as a society the way we attach so much importance on stuff you know most people just as long as they've got their prior amazon account they're happy you know the Mm -hmm. stuff that we feel we need in life compared to the pleasure and and sustenance and and all-round mental and physical health and happiness you get from good food um you know obviously i'm in my 40s now so like you get more reflective as you go older but but even when I was younger I loved food and I and I love seeing how young people these days it seems to be they're embracing good food way more than than my generation did I mean I left a very academic girls school and half of my girlfriends didn't know how to cook because we were positively encouraged to get out of the kitchen as fast as possible you know with our suffragette feminism you know someone else can do the cooking but actually it's the most valuable tool I think yeah, so talking about, you know, being a little older now, but you just still seem to do enormous amounts. You've got this huge successful restaurant business. You're just launched your new latest book. Where do you find all your energy to do all this? Um, I think uh, my husband says I'm like the Duracell bunny. So basically I run, 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 run. And then I collapse for a bit. Kind of like sleep, and then I'm like, oh, I've got another idea, and then go run, 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 run. Um, I just, I think, I think basically, I got into food really late, so I went to very academic day school. I had all these misconceptions about what I should be doing, and my father's really bad at making money, so we're always struggling for cash. We're always almost going to move out of our house, and it was always a worry the the cash thing. And so, um, so I kind of tried when I left school to get a proper sensible job. And then I realised I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who I can only really work hard at something that I'm really passionate about. If I get bored, then I, I turn off and I, I just can't. And, and that I've proved time and again in my 20s where I kind of got the sack or was made redundant from jobs that I just obviously had no interest in whatsoever. Not very good at faking it. And so and so then I finally worked, found food. But I was quite, you know, I went off to cooking school at Ballymaloo when I was 26 or 27, something like that. And so I felt by then I'd like wasted almost a decade. So I think I was on catch up. You know, I really in my 20s thought I was flawed, that I was a good for nothing, kind of useless, you know, a lot of kind of self-criticism, a lot of um, dislike of who I was, you know, felt like there was a lot to do in life and I was failing at all of it. And so once I kind of discovered this world of food, that I was so passionate about and, and had always been passionate about, but suddenly someone said, look, this is a viable career. Then it just all opened out. So I think 
now, I mean, I just feel so incredibly lucky that although it was shit in my 20s and I was not happy at all, um, I now feel so privileged I'm working, doing something that I am so passionate about, so interested in, and, and all the different parts of food that's so interesting. You know, from food writing, where I read wonderful literature at night to try and improve my writing skills, mm. or from the microbial action in soil, because I'm fascinated by soil and how we grow food. I'm reading Entangled Life at the moment, which is all about the microcausae in the soil. Um, mm. and, the, and, and it's just so fascinating, the hi-fi and, and how all these organisms although they don't have brains, you know, act in a very kind of connected, intelligent way. And, you know, food is linked to mental health, physical health, uh, society, politics, uh, environment. Mm. It's linked to everything. And it's linked mostly, mostly, mostly about pleasure and and enjoyment and, and that human connection. And I think there's so much in the world that disconnects us. I mean, the metaverse, I mean, who the hell wants to live a life in the metaverse when you could actually physically be in a room with someone and touch them and mm. laugh with them and physically hear the kind of somber, the, the, the resonance of their voices when you speak to them? And, you know, I just, we have become so disconnected. And I think that the, the capitalist structure has, has kind of worked so well and so profitably at slowly, slowly disconnecting us and emasculating us and de-skilling us and getting us away from using our hands and physically using our bodies to survive and be and act and work and I think it's very lucky that I work in a job that is so physical and I cycle around London and I walk fast and I'm busy and I'm very physically active because then because it makes me feel mentally strong and happy Mm. but but yeah it makes me feel mentally happy but but that's also strength and I think so much of the way we live in society today has been evolved. I don't think intentionally, but it's structured in a way that robs us almost of happiness and and strength and and um and and power to just be a, be you know be masters of our own universe. Um, and so I think it's really important for all of us as political statements, as a kind of survival, as future happiness, to kind of reclaim our our sense of agency and purpose and that's another reason why I love food because everything we choose to put in our shopping basket and eat uh, can either benefit us or, or negatively harm us but it can also benefit the environment which is such a huge topic and I think something that completely throws people because it's so terrifying the way the state of the world is and yet even how we eat is so you know we can be so empowered by what choice food choices we make and you know how much vegetables we eat and how little processed meat we eat or factory farm meat those are real choices that we can make real impacts on on society and and the birds and the bees and the environment absolutely absolutely there's there's so many things there that you just said that i i i can relate to i was a late starter as well in terms of uh, career and i spent my 20s wondering what i was meant to do um and similarly to you at 26 27 sort of discovered food although I was always passionate about food but it was a viable career and I could make money and prove my parents wrong because they were like no you're not getting into food (laughs) um but in terms of making a big impact and this is where I find what you're doing absolutely fascinating and inspiring 
and um, wanting you to share a bit more about the process and how to go about it. But Oaxaca is one of the first carbon neutral restaurants. And I think you're such a great example that as a food and beverage company, you can become carbon neutral. And I'm hoping that it's an example that you're setting that many will follow in your in your footsteps. But tell us a little bit more about that and what it actually means. So we started 15 years ago now, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I think I, you know, I'd always cared about the environment and I it was it sounds a bit weird but 15 years ago I was worried about the impact of opening a Mexican restaurant where I knew we'd have to ship over the dry chilies mm. to get to get the right flavor profiles um so I was already lying awake at night about that kind of thing as opposed to just using you know very local ingredients and doing a kind of modern British restaurant so I was thinking about that and so already I was making quite strong choices on what we would put on our menus in terms of, you know, only British meat. Uh, we would kind of play around with different cheeses like fetters or Lancashire's or um, even pecorinos sometimes to try and mimic a little the flavour profiles of cheeses that I discovered in Mexico, but not copy, um, but neither, sh- you know, fly over dairy, um, which felt to me completely wrong. So, you know, my, my terroir was very much in Britain, um, but my flavour inspiration was very much in Mexico. And so I kind of slightly agonised about how I could get those two things to talk to each other. But also I was very lucky because when I when I went to cooking school at Ballymaloo and Doreen Allen, who who runs it, uh, was talking about soil fertility and 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 this very scary notion that we were losing good soil at a very high rate even kind of 20 years ago, 25 years ago, she's probably talking about it. So I joined the Soul Association when I left Balimlu and I joined Slow Food and I started getting very interested in how food security is very linked to, you know, if we just eat one species of banana and then a fungus attacks that banana and we can't save it, then suddenly we've got no bananas mm. left in the world. You know, stuff like that seemed very stark to me. And it seemed to be that no one really was thinking about these things. So I, I felt that Oaxaca was a really good vehicle to to be able to use business as a way to address some of the things that worried me about the environment and and, and food security and all that kind of stuff. And my business partner, um, I think in the first couple of weeks, thought I was a bit mad. But then actually he really jumped on board and, and his art side of the business was more in the architectural side and the design of the of the restaurants and so he got really interested in how we could build each restaurant and use every bit of material in a, in a space that we'd found so our fire site in Covent Garden was this old Irish pub with kind of years of sick kind of smeared into the floorboards and we kind of took them all up and we stripped them down and we polished them and we used them to kind of line our bar and our, our kitchen and it was it was always working with materials. And then and as we grew, he got more excited uh, working with you know great consultants about how we could take all the hot air from our fridges and freezers and, and use them to heat our hot water so we didn't have to have hot water tanks and just really neat things like that, which probably did cost a bit of money to begin with. But now we're looking at the kind of huge energy, soaring energy costs actually feels to me some of those decisions are actually quite smart mm. in, in hindsight uh but also 
a lot of stuff through the menu. So it's we we were carbon. We were the first restaurant group to go carbon neutral, which is great. And um and we're definitely looking at carbon zero at the moment. But what I'm also interested in hugely is I think as a society, uh, we we focus on silver bullets. And at the moment, all anyone talks about is carbon. But what I find is interesting is that carbon doesn't address um, soil erosion and degradation, which given that 95% of the food we eat is grown in soil, if we get rid of, if we rubbish all our soil, which is what the Mayans did um, in the kind of 1300s and then died out, like a whole race died out because they basically screwed their soil, which is kind of what we're doing, Mm. slightly terrifyingly, um, then you can't grow food. So, so I'm really interested in looking at all aspects, you know, like water, what's, what's our water like? Is it kind of pure? Can we, can we swim in our rivers? Can we drink the water? Uh, what about the biodiversity, you know, cause without the earthworm, the dung beetle and, and the bumblebee, again, we're going to find it really hard to pollinate crops. And, you know, I've heard that in Madagascar now they use small kids to pol- hand pollinate mm. vanilla bulbs mm. because, because there's so few insects left. Mm. So I think as, as a species, if we want to survive, we have to think in a much more holistic, um, full circle way about um, the environment because the environment is a complex system. And the idea that you can fix what we're doing to the environment with kind of slightly you know, simplistic thing, let's just look at carbon. Well, great, let's look at carbon. But what about soil? And, and so that's why Oaxaca, we have things like half our menus now, vegetarian, which I think is really important, mm-hmm. not only to give people low cost choices to eat, but also so that you can, you know, get away from eating factory farmed meat, which we know is, you know, really, really harmful. Uh, for the environment, mm-hmm. just because of the soy, the animal feed, you know, the amount of animal feed that goes to feed our, our intensively reared animals. And I mean, they're now, I think it's something like Henry Dimbleby shared this brilliant slide at Groundswell last week, which was something like there are, you know, 10 times as many farmed animals as there are wild creatures in the world. Mm-hmm. The, the biomass of them is just so much bigger than anything else. Um, so I think. It's really interesting looking at the holistic picture because nature and the environment is holistic and you've got to look at all aspects of it. And I think even for restaurants, what I f- I'm finding most interesting now is carbon is, is a great tool and it helps you cut down on the energy you're using and it helps you be really aware of how much water you're using, how much energy. So that's great. But how can you actually, through your supply chain, put through a better food system mm. as well. So we have started using Hodmodods on our menu, which is the most incredible, you know, company that mm. works with We love you know, them. Yeah, they're so good. Yeah, they're great, right? yeah. So it's a yeah. lot of farmers who are farming regeneratively with nature and not against it. Um and growing things like pulses, which are great for fiber, great for protein, you know, really yeah. fill you up. And and you can make them delicious. So, Absolutely. you know, what's not to love? Um and 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 then, you know, Wild Farmed, an amazing company who are producing flour regeneratively as well. You know, and I'm looking at how can we get their flour through our system? Can we can we make our tortillas with their flour mm. and, and really get, get that type of food to our system too? Because I think it's quite scary, the whole debate about food. I was listening to George Monbiot at, um, at Groundswell and he was basically saying, let's just, you know, let's just have no farming. It's much better without any farming. Mm. But, but it, that, that seems such a simplistic way to look at the fact we are still growing 95% of food in soil. How do you go from that to no farming? What's wrong with farming with nature? Mm. And I think he's got a very idealistic view of what, what 
that nature, wildness was like 20,000 years ago or 30,000 years ago. But that's forgetting that we're now, you know, eight or nine million billion people and we need feeding and we need feeding on good nutritious food. And here's um, kind of Petri dish fermented foods might be brilliant at giving us some protein. But actually what we're most missing in our diets are fibre. And our crisis of poor health, which is globally a huge epidemic of obesity and poor health, is largely linked to the amount of processes going into our food now. In fact, it rips out all the fibre, which is so crucial for our gut Mm. biome. So, so all this stuff, I find it's just so fascinating and looking at all the kind of problems and, and really feeling quite hopeful about the solutions because there are so many brilliant people looking at solutions. And I think the only way in life is to feel hopeful because otherwise you might as well sit in a corner and put your head in a bag and, you know, forget about it. But, you know, instead, let's be hopeful and look at solutions and look at what we can do. Because apart from anything else, if you can make the solutions delicious and tasty and you know with the human touch and getting us back round tables together talking and connecting then that feels great too i agree talking about flavor slightly change the subject but that's all amazing stuff um so obviously it's about flavor taste and i i completely agree you know all of the stuff is so important but in the, but you know for most people it has to be delicious your food is very delicious people love your food um and i really love to know just of course you're inspired on mexican flavors but how did that start initially and do you feel the same about mexican food and flavors as you did a number of years ago i i just i mean mexico is just this extraordinary country and the it's it's biodiverse it's called mega biodiverse because it's got uh, almost 50,000 plant species uh, and varieties. In the UK, we've got about 1,500. In Mexico, it's 50,000. So when you go out and then you go to those food markets and you see the 200 varieties of chilies and the tomatoes and the tomatillos and the huge different sizes of avocados and the courgettes and the squash plants and the herbs and the wild leaves. And, you know, you kind of, it's mind-boggling. And the flavours are so delicious. And... They're regional, so they they really range from from region to region, and I am I think I get more obsessed by Mexican food. I think maybe it goes in waves, but at the moment I'm in peak excitement about Mexican flavors. I mean, I think this idea that you can get the dried chilies over, and so my my book Meat Free Mexican, I play with cascabel, ancho, chipotle, uh, maybe guajillo. And then a couple of fresh ones. They're they're basically so maybe four dry chilies that you could go and buy online, and then you know really play with how they can completely transform flavors and add depth of flavor and body to food, or lovely kind of chili top notes onto food. And I and I just think it's such fun uh, playing around with flavors because because largely, well, like all things, too much choice is a bad thing, right? You know, you think, what am I going to cook today? And you think, go to the supermarket. Oh, my God, there's a million things I could cook. Whereas I love to start with, well, what's in season? Yeah, I've got a great local market near me, which is really lucky, by the way. I'm very lucky to have a good market near me. So I go on a Sunday. I see what's in season. I load up my chopping trolley. I walk back with kind of overwhelmed with my heavy bags. (laughs) But that's what kind of then dictates what I'm going to eat. But then, you know, you've got courgettes for a couple of months. So you want to taste you know, different courgettes and different guises. And that's where the chilies and the spices come in to just add difference. And, you know, I love eating the same tried and tested things, but I also love experimenting. And 
yeah that's, as a world that's amazing so talking about your book which I've got in my on my shelf here and um it's amazing absolutely love it um it's meat free um and I wanted to touch base on that so what's the inspiration behind doing a meat-free Mexican cookbook well I think I wanted to so I eat meat but I'm very careful about the eat the meat I eat and I don't eat it very often I really don't so because I I I genuinely love vegetables I think they're there's a there's they're way more versatile and creative I feel than than meat you know meat it feels like there's an there's a few ways and there's different marinades you can but with vegetables you can kind of grate them and chop them and slice them and grill them and poach them and puree them and steam them there's just so much mm. you can do and so I, I find them very creative to cook with um we know that we should be eating lots of them for our gut biome you know eating the rainbow is supposed to be healthy and I love that idea for me health is never about denial like I love chocolate I love crisps I love the naughty stuff but I also yes I love, me too. yeah right <laughs> gotta have gotta have a love of food and a love of all the stuff, the good and the bad, but then why not just fill yourself with the good as well and make mm-hmm. it all delicious? And I, for me, I suddenly the, the the idea of doing this meat-free Mexican book seemed to just open up a huge swathe of and an cooking for people who just want to put a few more vegetables on their plate. So colourful, seasonal-driven vegetables cooked and you know maybe different from the Middle Eastern vegetarian recipes we're used to or the Indian vegetarian dishes we're used to which are complete delicious and wonderful mm. but I guess it was like giving people a um, bigger repertoire of kind of experimenting to do with 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 the wonderful vegetables they can eat with their their meat if they wanted some on the side or or alone on the plate you know without meat and have you pulled from Mexican tradition, sort of traditions of sort of vegetarian dishes or vegan dishes, or have you had to be more creative? So I have, um, I have, so I've been traveling to Mexico for about 20 years, and then the, the food has developed enormously in that country. And what I found most exciting and thrilling is that when I lived there, it was before MasterChef. And I see MasterChef as a bit of a turning point for the food revolution that happened in, in Great Britain around restaurants and food. Because when we we opened Oaxaca just after MasterChef, like, like a year later, and there was no social media. We were doing one of the first restaurants where you could turn up and have no bookings and have small plates of food and, and all that and street food. So bef- so it was a kind of Oaxaca felt quite revolutionary at the time. Mm-hmm. But then after that, the whole thing just went crazy and loads of young people started going to the food industry and the quality of food just started exploding. So at about that time, the same thing happened in Mexico. So when I was living in Mexico, there was a thing called Malanchismo, where even the great chefs in Mexico City were still slightly thinking that French food and Italian food and the Californian food was better. Mm. Malinchismo is after La Malinche, who was the girlfriend of Cortez. So Cortez landed from Spain in Veracruz and he started going out with a local girl called, called La Malinche. So she was seen as this kind of traitor because she favoured the European over the Mexican. And so this attitude that the European food was somehow more sophisticated or better than the Mexican was still kind of prevailing. And now... You look at Mexico and that has completely turned on its head. Um, thanks to people like Enrique Olvera, mm. who really started championing you know, this incredible produce from Mexico. So now I feel like when you go to Mexico, you don't eat in European restaurants. You avoid them at all costs. <laughs> you only eat in the local traditional, well, not even the traditional, but 
you know, there are there are waves of chefs in Mexico who are born and bred in Mexico and trained in Mexico, who are really showcasing their incredible ingredients, but also in a modern way. So like the moles, you know, guacamole is an yeah. avocado sauce. So mole is a sauce. You know, the modern moles are incredible. Um, Elena Gregaris in her incredible restaurant um, in Mexico City does wonderfully modern um, moles with with wonderful vegetables. Um, and then tamales now. I mean, Cole, Santiago Lastra's Cole in London does these wonderful mm. chocolate tamales. And so I feel like this book, it's come at a lovely time because there's so much experimenting going on in Mexico and there's so much more knowledge in the UK and, and the availability of the chilies as well that um, that I could really stretch my wings a bit and, and have fun, really have fun with the kind of flavours and the cooking techniques. Um, but always with this idea, because also I'm a mum and a housewife as well as a businesswoman and that, you know, we don't have so much time. And it was fine yeah. in my 20s when I had no kids because I could spend a whole day cooking recipe. And I you know, thought it was almost, I was, you know, better off for it because I could show how foodie I was. Whereas nowadays, for me, a successful recipe is something that, that actually someone's cooked because yeah. they feel like I can do this. Because yeah. if it's so kind of laboured and, and twisted, I mean, obviously at weekends, you've got more time. Yeah. But I want people to actually use my recipes and cook them. Um, otherwise, I feel they've slightly failed. Mm. Yeah, that's so it's so interesting and such a great way of, of, of looking at it. And I think that really translates uh, throughout the book when you when you look at the recipes. It's it's all very doable, but with super interesting ingredients that are also available to us. Um, speaking of home life, and we've touched upon um, sustainability. What would you say? How do you try and live sustainably at home? Because I think sustainability and and trying to do better is such a broad subject, but sometimes I feel that we need to break it down in tangible steps. And if you do something small, that obviously creates a bigger change. Um, So what would you say that you try and do at home with your family to live more sustainably? Well, first of all, I've got three children, so that's really unsustainable. Um, number three was a slight accident, but um, <laughs> I always feel really bad about that and talking about sustainability. My husband's always like, just ruin your chances. You can't talk to anyone about sustainability. We've already ruined it. <laughs> but, you know, we try and we, we've got one car. We'll move to electric as soon as we can. I've just I've just got this new kibashi um, system for my food waste. Oh, um, how is that going, by the way? Well, I've just started, so I'm on my first load. Oh, wow. And you basically layer up cooked and raw food, and you sprinkle it with this kind of fermenting Amazing. brown stuff. And I'm really excited to see uh, what goes on there. I, I cycle around London as much as I possible. I, you know, I really try not to use my car at all. We eat a lot of vegetables. Mm. I, it's my mission to go to the market uh, at the weekends or, or when I can, because I really believe that shopping with these farmers who are really custodians of the soil and their unique biodiversities in their farms is a really good way of supporting the right thing. So my husband gets driven mad. Do we have to go to the market? And I'm like, well, yes, we do. It's a Sunday market. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to go to a supermarket and buy lots of plastic wrap stuff when I know I can get it, you know, wrapped yeah. in lovely paper and, and, and make it, it's more seasonal. So those are some ways. I mean, I did go to a terrifying, um, talk series of lectures the other day that said whatever we do pales in comparison to the 
population boom that's going to have happen in sub-Saharan Africa, which is why, you know, this, which is such an uncomfortable thing to talk about. Mm. And it's why, you know, I feel all the kind of education we do with women and girls, it's also so important, um, you know, across the world, you know, educating, educating everyone about food and the environment is so important. Mm. But, you know, in our small way, we, we try and grow stuff in our back garden um we've got a garden though and that is lucky so i think in in other things i do chefs and schools is this incredible charity that i'm a trustee of yes and it is such a brilliant charity and and the premise is you put one trained chef into a school kitchen and you transform the way the entire school thinks about food and and is educated about food so instead of feeding kids you know rubbish that makes them feel you know, drowsy at school and the teachers avoid eating with the kids because the food's so disgusting. Teenage girls get eat, you know, eating disorders because it's so disgusting and everyone waits and eats in kind of fast food shops in the after school because it's so disgusting. Instead, um, kids are fed nutritious, delicious, brightly coloured, wonderful food at 50 pence per pupil per day less than the crap they were being fed to before. Um, and that money is channeled back into the wages of the cooks. And you educate kids about being able to eat good food well. And I think it's so important now with food poverty that kids at least get the chance to have one good meal of a day. And the idea that that we can level up without people on the lowest incomes being able to have their kids eating at least one good meal a day it's so bonkers. And I think we all need to put so much pressure on the government and the Department of Education about this, because the Department of Education still thinks that good food is somehow a luxury or just not important mm. or irrelevant to education. And yet we were in a new school the other day and the kids said completely unbidden, they were like, it's amazing. We don't we don't nod off after after lunch anymore. We can really focus and learn mm. in the afternoons because we're not feeling so drowsy. And I thought that was such a kind of uh, spine tingling response from kids, you know, not not a bidden, just what they'd reserved about this amazing food they were now eating. So it's an incredibly inspiring charity and one we're hoping to spread across the country. Um, we're just opening now in, in Cornwall's our second chapter. We've got some in the north of England, but we're in 100 schools and we want to be we want to like be in a thousand schools over the next five years through seeding out the idea, um, but also putting pressure on even school governors because we've got school food standards in this country, but school governors don't pay attention to them and they're failing in 80% of secondary schools, just are failing all the school food standards. And I think the best way of levelling up is at least giving people a basic meal at least once a day. So um, absolutely, I'd, I'd actually love to see it. I'd love to see it extended and, and have these school kitchens as like social canteens in the evenings so that mm. you know, other people come and eat well too. Because we know that people have like two or three jobs now and they've got no money and they've some of them got no kitchens. You know, 12% people in this country yeah. have no kitchen. So, you know, why not have these social canteens and invest in that way and save yourself, you know, all the 18 billion pounds a year we spend in the NHS exactly on poor diet and anyway, what, i talk so much no it's perfect <laughs> but it's just on that what would be the process if someone wants to get involved or interested in that well i think you do you do three things you write to your mp and say it's a disgrace the school food is so bad you then write to your school governors and say you are legally obliged to in, to enforce the school food standards mm. so why aren't they being enforced because literally mm. you could be sued and then three contact chefs and schools and see if you can jump on board. Um, 
And, you know, we've got to rattle the cage more. We've got to, like, you know, I think we, we're, we're too well-natured in this, this country. We've got to, like, realise how important good food is. And I start demanding it as a kind of, you know, as a, as a given. I agree. It's um, definitely being too polite. And I think that it's, it's knowing that you have got rights and that you can do something about it. And if enough people raise their voices, then, then, then change can definitely happen. And it's incredible what you're doing. Um, on the point of making changes, um, I just want to revert back to the carbon neutral yeah. point. And what would a restaurant have to do to get into that process of becoming carbon neutral and, and doing better? Because there's there's so many food and beverage outlets that can do so much better. Yeah. No, um, so... Where where do you start? Well, I think I think there are really good consultants who can help you. And I think mm. but just make sure they've got good track record. So you're, you know, you've got a good one and not someone who's just kind of promising you the kind of end of the rainbow. Um, so get a good consultant. And then it's just looking at all the ways. So for Oaxaca it's and, and DF Tacos, it's integrated to how we talk to our staff. So mm. every site has a sustainability chapter champion. We 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 separate all our waste. That's quite a big one, and we make compost huge. waste. It's a massive thing. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, so it, it, you know, it's a bit of a hassle. You've got different bins. You pay yeah. a bit extra for recycling your food waste, and but you know, we we we're always talking to our staff about about leaving the planet in a in a slightly better way, or having a lighter tread on the as lighter tread as possible on the planet. Yeah, and I think actually it's what our staff respect. I think it's a really good way of keeping staff in a really high turnover industry um you know i think people believing in what you do as a company is really important yeah and then i guess your customer as well you know we 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 don't talk so much about what we do to our customers we do a little bit but um but you know even putting less meat on your menu is such a good way make lots of vegetarian choices but make them delicious you know use meat as a seasoner and use it deliciously buy better meat if you can i mean all our chicken and pork free range our, our beef is grass-fed it costs us a fortune mm. it's just something we believe in and then we try and balance the menu by having really really delicious vegetarian choices on the menu too and i think that allows the customer to have fun exploring the the menu and choosing what they want but hopefully having lots of good choices as well um but it's all sorts of things it's you know, turning off the lights, saving water. And I think if you can have a kind of sustainability charter in your in your businesses mm, and, really talk, and, and then it's so much internal communication and, and just having the champions rewarding sites that are doing good things and, and, and just always trying to stay at the forefront of latest developments and what you can learn. Because it's fun in a way. It's, com- it's a competitive tool. On a, on a slightly lighter note, um, so in te- what's really inspiring are you at the moment? In te- like food, trends, restaurants? Uh, what's out there? Life. So, Life, yeah. So what's inspiring me at the moment? Um, uh, so uh, my kids' love of music is really exciting me. So we just had Glastonbury. I couldn't get tickets this year. <gasps> but their interest in it is very exciting. So I'm really looking forward to maybe next time I'm going to some music festivals with them um my courgette plants are really exciting me because it looks as if they've kind of stuck and it looks like they're beginning to like spread their leaves i'm really hoping for a bounteous crop of courgettes um uh books are exciting me i've got so many books by my um by my 
bookshelf to read and I'm extremely excited by all them the sunshine excites me deeply I definitely feel happier in the summer and I loving my bicycle and jumping on it and feeling kind of alive as I was around town and then the Coco Club in Camden it's quite close to me I mean I went and saw Gabriel's the other day amazing band um so live music is really exciting me the fact we can go and see live music again um and and restaurants you know all these wonderful restaurants everywhere going out and eating and and eating delicious friends, seeing friends and feeling really that the world has kind of properly opened up and we're in the summer and, you know, yeah. we can connect with each other again. Love I it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, everything that you just said. <laughs> and by the way, I've got I, only one of my courgette plants has survived, but I've nurtured this one plant and, and I think I've got three courgettes. Yes. Growing. Yes. <laughs> um we're nearing the end of our um our session um or of our chats and we always like to ask these two questions um i will start with uh what's the worst advice that you've ever been given just Um, start with a negative we'll start with the negative (laughs) and then we'll end on the positive i think (laughs) i think the worst advice I was ever given was from a well-meaning friend about what would be a good business deal for me mm. at the time in a certain situation. And it made me think that I needed to settle for things. And I think what I've learned um, in the world is that you you do quite need to fight um, fight for opportunity. I think if you're, whether you're female or creative, both stand you at a bit of a um, disadvantage in business. And I think so you have to be aware when you are either female or creative that you do actually have to fight a bit harder. Um, And so I think if I was telling my younger self uh, something now, I'd be saying, you know, definitely be braver about fighting for what you think is, is, is kind of a good share of stuff and, you know, you're just part yeah, I couldn't agree more. And on a slightly more positive note, but kind of the same thing, what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? So obviously there's been a lot of advice in my time, but I think really my my strongest advice, I think if from, I have a few gurus in my life who are women in their 60s, 70s, even 80s, who are still incredibly active and busy. And I think... And my grandmother, my wonderful grandmother, who was from Tennessee, who ate butter and olive oil and cream and by the truckload and loved her black Russians and loved dancing. And she was amazing at Kalinetic. She was a great woman who road tested our pulley in our garden when we were growing up and was always in the back of my father's motorbike. And I just think living life to the full, saying yes to things, even though they scare you, um, you know, just having a big appetite for life is really important because it's quite easy to back yourself into a small corner, but then life gets scarier and scarier. So you have to be brave with life and, and really kind of go at it with a kind of open heart and a brave heart. That is such very good advice. And I think everything, uh, something that we should all live more by. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you Everyone can find you on social media, obviously, or you've got your new book out, Meat Free Mexican. Everyone can try your food in Oaxaca. Is there anywhere else or anything else that you want to mention? Um, 
No, it's just such a pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm such a fan um, and this is such a great podcast. So thank you so much for having me. It's a real honour and pleasure to be chatting to you on this lovely sunny day. Yes, thank the pleasure is all ours. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to What for Thatcher. I hope you've enjoyed our food conversations and please do have a listen to the rest of the episodes to hear more brilliant stories about everything and anything to do with food. And a big thank you to our sponsors, Doug Drinks. Don't forget, you can also get 10% off anything you order from their website, which is dougdrinks.com. Just use the code WTFDUG10 at the checkout. And please do give us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this podcast. It really does help spread the word. And if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find Bettina at Bettina's Kitchen and myself at Rebel Recipes. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back soon.